Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. We have a special episode this week. If you are listening to this the week it comes out, uh, Sarah and I happen to have disappeared to a secluded beach somewhere for a hopefully COVID-free vacation. And we are just having a little bit of a week off, but we figured we'd make sure that we produce some kind of content to send out to y'all. And I think it's going to be a good day. Today we are talking about... Uh, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. I said that right. Nicene Constantinopolitan. I'm just going to stop trying to say that. The Nicene Creed, John. But it's not technically just the Nicene Creed. <laughs> it's Nicene Constantinopolitan. Sure. I think that's where they get the word Neapolitan and ice cream from. It's just a Deep, deep contraction. Fact checker Brian, can you uh, look that up? I will uh, look up where Neapolitan ice cream comes from. All right. Uh, with its derivation. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding this out, actually. This sounds like a fact I need to know. Okay, so today we're talking about creeds. Let's talk about creeds, baby. <laughs> so how's everybody doing before we do oh, that? Checking sure. in, everybody good? Just so eager to talk about early church and creeds. Um, yeah, I'm doing great. We went camping last week. We're going to the beach with my father next week where we're going to sequester in a beach house and hopefully read lots of books that we've bought but have not read. So uh, just to clarify our first uh, fact check of the day, uh, Neapolitan ice cream was named in the late 19th century as a reflection of its presumed origins in the cuisine of the Italian city of Naples. I've heard it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, this is uh, my last full day in my temporary housing. So I will be moving into my uh, new house, hopefully tomorrow after the walkthrough. This is all very exciting. We would ask how Garrett is doing, but he is currently trapped in a meeting and hopefully will be joining us later. But for now, let's go ahead and start chatting creeds. This is just going to be kind of a loose conversation. The theme of creeds has come up several times in our past few episodes. It just so happens by fate and circumstance that we know a lot of um, various kinds of Christian folks, pastors and theologians and various kinds of people that are engaged in that part of church culture. You know, it's so common in the United States that the, that has been the series of topics that we've tended to focus on in our first two months worth of episodes. And one of the things that keeps coming up again and again is sort of the baseline Christian belief and the great baseline Christian ideas that form the faith. So we just kind of wanted to do a systematic overview of one particular statement, one particular faith statement that has essentially been sort of the bedrock of church history for essentially most of church history. It was produced in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, uh, and then it was amended at the Council of Constantinople later 
and then you know was reaffirmed and and some other things were going on at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So it really took almost 500 years for Christianity to sort of fully form into something that was fully functioning as a religion in the sense that we think of it today. So guys, let's talk about the Nicene Creed because creeds and confessions and statements of faith have been a huge part of church history. And we cannot necessarily understand Christianity without understanding particular creeds and confessions. And so the oldest one, the bedrock one, is from Nicaea. Right. So uh, creed, uh, just in English, you know, keeping it simple, uh, comes from the Latin word uh, credo, which means I believe. Um, And uh, so the Nicene Creed or the Nicene Constantinople Creed, uh, however we're going to say that. uh, The Neapolitan Creed. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, Begins... uh, in multiple sections was statements of belief and it's we believe in god we believe in one lord jesus christ we believe in the holy spirit and then there's many different uh clauses that clarify different things about that so we should probably spend some time in those clauses yeah and um you might recognize creeds from your worship service if your tradition says a creed they're important things to to sort of repeat every week so uh, real quick, I wanted to just say why creeds, you know, why do we say some kind of creed every week? And that is because while the Bible gives us everything we need for salvation, uh, sometimes we don't always get to go to all the finer points. And we spent a lot of time in the early church sort of figuring out all these very technical theological ideas like uh, God being or Jesus being both fully God and fully human. So it's almost like, in my mind, just the, the shortest synthesis of all that we believe. Um, sort of like, a, what is the shortest sentence that has all the letters of the alphabet? The quick brown fox jumps over the something. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Am I all alone here? Never mind. You know, we play that same game of cranium. No, not cranium, cranium, quelf. We played the same game of quelf the other day. And... I do not remember that sentence, but I remember learning about that sentence. So there's a book called Ella Mena P um, about a fictional town where letters are outlawed one by one. It is an utter delight if you love words. And this is where I learned that phrase from the quick brown fox jumps over or something, but it's been a long time since I've read it. Anyway, neither here nor there. It's important for us to say these things every week in our our worship um, or in our communion liturgy. Um, And the Nicene Creed is sort of the OG of these creeds, yes? Yeah, it really does function as a summary of the core Christian convictions that were eventually emerged from kind of this original conversation and encounter with Jesus, the person, the historical person, and the follow-up actions and activities of his disciples. So we're going to just kind of go through it piece by piece, and we're going to talk about each of the sentences, what the core concept of the sentence is, and also why the sentence exists. What was the controversy that was going on between some of these various early Christian folks at the time. 
So I'm going to read just kind of the very beginning of the creed, and then we're just going to comment on it piece by piece. So the creed begins, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. John, you didn't start at the beginning. You're right. I completely missed the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump back to the beginning and maybe I'll do some light editing for this episode. The beginning actually begins, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen. So let's take both of those sections. We believe in one God, we believe in one Lord, and kind of break them down. Sounds good. So I I don't feel like most Christians are going to find this first section really controversial at all. Uh, It's affirming... uh, uh, a Trinitarian form of monotheism, which just means that we believe in uh, one God uh, and that we, uh, we understand that God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of these sections is going to be about one of those um, persons of the Trinity. Yeah, and it really reveals, I think, the sense of early Christians, their sense of the identity and, and nature of God. So the theme of father as this parent figure, but also this figure who is a a maker and a creator and a crafter of all that is seen and unseen. So, you know, when we were talking with Becky Copeland the other day, and we were talking about the theme of substance and God uh, being viewed as a creator even in our modern and postmodern contexts when, you know, we have science as our sort of core guide when we talk about the physical reality of the universe, but then we have this sort of sense of uh, a religious reality as well in the person and nature of God. So when we get in then to the next phase, when we get into this theme of Jesus, then we do the same thing. We're talking about who is this person and character of Jesus as you know, a, a component of that Trinity, of that God, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So who is Jesus? So if God, the creator, is who we address first, then Jesus is our redeemer. So this section of the creed is explaining to us who Jesus is and how Jesus was made, which was some holy magic. Brian, why don't you explain? <laughs> so made is probably not the right word. Um, so it, begotten, says. <laughs> it literally says begotten, not made. Oh, I've already messed this up. So, uh, um, so how, how did Jesus come to be? So in, in a mystery before time, um, mystery is just that Christian word that means we really don't understand how the Trinity works. Um, and that's the so problem. A lot more mysteries than the Trinity, <laughs> There are many mysteries in the faith. Um, But in that very first sentence, it says that we believe in one Lord, uh, Jesus Christ. But that's to say that the same God that has created all things is the same as Jesus, the person. 
Um, they are of the same essence. And Becky talked a lot about that a couple weeks ago. Um, and we see uh, in the second sentence that Jesus is the only son of God. Um, and that's a statement that uh, we know has some political connotations for this time period to say, no, you know, the Roman emperors are not uh, the son of God, uh, which is funny because a Roman emperor called this council um, for them to meet. Um, but the son of God is a, is a political statement in saying that the, that it's not just that Jesus is God. It's that Jesus is the, uh, the head of like the kingdom and the movement that would become the church. Um, go ahead, John. Right. And you know, the, the question here, this, this concern with Jesus and God being of the same substance goes back in particular to a series of conflicts that were occurring in the church at the time, because it's basically as soon as Jesus came on the scene and as soon as you had an early sort of Christian movement, you also started to see the Christian movement go in various directions. This is part of why you see uh, stories all the time in National Geographic and various publications about, you know, all the books that were left out of the Bible. Those were other portions, either fringes of the Christian movement or alternative religious movements that had adopted the imagery that the Christians were using. And as a result, you got various, you know, different flavors of things that, that may have disagreed with sort of the core philosophies and themes of Christianity. So Arianism, for example, claims Jesus as a person, as a created thing, which, cha divine, yeah. which changes the story of... Well, e even, even if the Arians understood Jesus as like a semi-divine character. He was still a creature, um, something that is a created being. And so the creed addresses that in saying that Jesus is eternally begotten. Um, so, and that, and that just is to say Jesus wasn't made as like people are regular people are made. Right. And there's another group, the Docetists, who endorsed this, this theme of docetism, which, you know, argued that, you know, Jesus was not flesh and blood. They kind of had this vision of Jesus being this kind of divine illusion that had been cast upon the earth. And of course that also opened up this theme and this idea that would let them kind of move away from the Hebrew idea that everything that exists was called good from the beginning, right? And then you get into this uh, whole other subset of early religions that are in that Greek milieu, in that Greek sphere that, you know, sort of had this idea that the universe was made by a cruel, evil deity of some kind, a demiurge. And it was then being renewed by a separate deity that had come in to conquer the demiurge and to fix all the things that had been broken in the first place, which, you know, works well, I think, for the philosophical problem of evil, but it also takes you away from a lot of the other core themes that were, you know, being repeatedly affirmed in other areas. You know, the second you assume that 
that reality is evil that has implications for your practice and the way you live your life. And it may lead to, you know, a variety of different kinds of abuses and extremes and rejections that are just really not healthy or good for human flourishing. So uh, just to go back for just a moment and talk about kind of like uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God, the son, however you want to refer to that second person uh, and their eternally begottenness. Um, the creed clarifies its substance by making comparisons. So it's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Um, and so that's just really to describe kind of the essence of it, um, to be abundantly clear that it's the same. It's not different in substance. Right. And so after that, we then sort of move into a, a statement about purpose and narrative. So, you know, if God was defined by this creative role, Jesus is defined by his redeeming role. So for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So we get this encapsulated sort of series of events that come out of you know, the gospel narratives and scripture stories. We also get a tie back to the Hebrew scriptures, which addresses uh, a guy named Marcion, who really just kind of wanted to throw out most of the Bible in the Old Testament, and he really didn't like um, any of the Hebrew Bible at all. So, you know, you can kind of see some of the maneuvering that's going on here as people navigate arguments over tradition and how they're going to be shaped going into the next period of the religion. Yeah. Uh, so you've done a great job of naming some of the heresies that this is in response to. And um, instead of saying something intellectual, I would like to suggest that for this podcast, we have some sort of morning shock shock radio, like heresy, like sound effect that we can pump in every so often. Just a sidebar. So, so John, what, what do, what do we make of the word incarnate? Uh, that seems to be a pretty important word in there. Well, you know, one of the other things that they were arguing over, in addition to the theme of substance, is, you know, what is happening here? And so incarnate is, you know, God assuming a particular way of being in the world. In this case, you know, the idea of it being a human person. God becoming a human person in solidarity with humanity. And, you know, Becky from a couple of weeks ago talked a lot about the idea that just God uh, becoming anything, crossing that divide between the divine reality and our reality, then, you know, adds a layer to all this. But you can listen to that episode if you're curious about it. 
but the incarnation and the emphasis on becoming truly human also addresses another set of ideas that were floating around at the time in Nestorianism and monophysitism. I can barely say these words. There's so many syllables. But these ideas, because people also, as they started to get their heads wrapped around this notion of an incarnate God, they also started to talk about, you know, is this figure of Jesus a human person? Is it a, a deity of some kind? Even if he has a human body, does that mean his mind is human? Does that mean his nature is divine? Does the divine nature have priority over the human nature? And it seems like really abstract reasoning, right? And these are questions that, you know, we might kind of roll our eyes at today. But again, they have profound implications for anybody who practices the faith and lives the faith. You know, if Jesus is not fully human, can he really be an example to humans for one? For right. One so um, as, we're, as we're talking about what does it mean for Jesus to be fully God and fully a human being, we have to recognize that the real crux of the matter is, is that if Jesus isn't both, we run into theology problems. So if um, Jesus is fully God and not fully, a, and not like a whole human being, then what does it mean? Can Jesus die? Like, what does that mean? Um, and if uh, Jesus isn't God uh, and is just a person, then he's only a moral exemplar. And so what does that have to do for our salvation? Um, uh, is is what is done going to be actually accomplishing anything? And so the only way it really all works is if Jesus doesn't have the math add up and he's 100% God and 100% human. Right. And this speech about he will come again in glory, judge the living and the dead, his kingdom will have no end is, is sort of a, a glimpse at this uh, metaphorical and, and, story-driven theme that, that Jesus's existence, his reality has in some capacity shifted our reality and move and change the direction in which it is moving and created sort of a track towards redemption, perhaps towards perfection. We'll talk in a minute when we talk about what's not in the creed, we'll talk a little bit about this more. But let's go on. We just have one more paragraph. We're hitting the third part of the Trinity. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So we get to that third part of this Trinitarian structure here for this creed, the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. This, uh, this third part of this Trinitarian uh, structure to this creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. So the Holy Spirit is that part of God that we acknowledge is with us still. Um, it sustains us. It also has always been and always will be. It is a part of God. It is the same 
uh, same essence, the same substance as God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer. Um, it is uh, an important part of our one God. And the Holy Spirit is also how we get this information from the prophets, right? We believe that the Bible is divinely inspired and that it is the Holy Spirit who puts the words on the hearts of the authors and prophets that we encounter in the Bible. Right. And when you say that, you know, different Christian traditions imagine this in different sorts of ways. You get the fundamentalists who are like, no, God basically wrote the book. Mm-hmm. I think as as both mainline Christians and Christian pastors, and I think just thinking people, we imagine that a little differently, right? Like, how do we picture that inspiration? Uh, so I, I'm, I mean, just look at the word inspiration it has the word spirit kind of, or the root of the word spirit in it. And so uh, thinking about kind of in general, that that's how my personal encounters with the Holy Spirit seem to come. It's more about inspiration and I'd like to think most of that's from God, um, you know, the Lord, the life giver. Yeah, I tend to think of it as a very artistic sort of idea. Like you might say, my muse or this this flash of brilliance, right? You know, it's not necessarily um, the notion of, you know, like spirit possession or something like that. And the idea of somebody writing all the words through my body with a pen, or anything like that. It tends to be more nebulous. Right. And um, the Holy Spirit represented here in this podcast by the meowing of our cat, Mary, <laughs> Mary Meowdalion, uh, the Holy Spirit tends to work with, um, with us in the concrete world. And this is part of how I understand the inspiration of the Bible as well, that the Holy Spirit is God working with the authors of the Bible and their understanding of the world at the time. Um, now, just one part of the creed that uh, we clearly aren't doing so hot at, um, you know, we're talking about uh, the Spirit uh, being with the Father and Son, but, you know, maybe we don't talk enough about the Spirit in worship and glory. Uh, no, we do not. Uh, we could probably do better at that. Yeah, and, you know, we um, should point out a couple of things about this passage. One of the things is that it shifts into our communal life. The Spirit is very much sort of a first person figure. It's, it's the God that resides in me. It's somewhat analogous to, to the Jewish concept of the Shekinah, the indwelling presence of God. And, you know, that's why when we pivot, we pivot immediately into who has spoken through the prophets who are calling the community back to a life of love and justice. And we talk about uh, the holy universal church that is rooted in the the apostles teachings about, you know, this is, they are the ones who described who Jesus was. And so then baptism being the way that we enter the community and, you know, represent the forgiveness of sins. And, you know, what do we do as the community? That's, that's where we get this statement. One of the things we could acknowledge is an essay by Brother Steindl Rast, who is a Benedictine Catholic monk. Uh, and he likes to talk about the persons of the Trinity as sort of depicted in this creed as the sort of figures of the way in which we encounter other things and other people. So the Holy Spirit would be our first person perspective, my perspective. 
Jesus would be our second person perspective, my ability to kind of look over and look at Sarah and say, I see you. And then God, the father would be sort of that third person perspective that, that looking outward and saying them over there. Right. So there's degrees of intimacy that are associated with this thematic statement as well. I really like that. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of what of his writing I've read. It's, it's always sort of deep and inspiring and very, very mystical and weird, which is where I exist as a religious person. <laughs> Amen. So we've gotten from this creed, uh, the idea that we are Trinitarian. We believe in one God with three natures. We believe that Gen- uh, Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. We've, we've got a lot here that we believe. What is missing from this Nicene Creed? I think a couple of things that are often prioritized heavily in churches today. So we have a distinct lack of specificity about some things. You know, the creed primarily focuses on the identity of God and is concerned about God's relationship to us. But you'll notice there's no description, vivid description of, you know, heaven or hell there's no sort of super vivid description about very particular kinds of, you know, political stances that we have to adopt or moral stances that we have to adopt. The early Christians were focused primarily on celebrating the person of Jesus and what he represents as, you know, this picture of the nature of the ineffable, the inexpressible, the indescribable God uh, that, you know, gives rise to the universe, that is the ground of the universe, that is, you know, the sort of power in the light circuit, so to speak. Well, and, and something else that's missing, and we talked about this in our very first episode, is kind of the mechanics of how salvation works. Um, and I think there's some wisdom in keeping it vague, um, and just saying it's for, it's for salvation, um, and, and not getting into the super, uh, specific into, uh, this is why, like, Jesus died, like, specifically to pay our debt or to, uh, restore us and make us new or to show us a new way. It's just saying, no, it's just for you. Like, um, and for, and for salvation that Jesus went through all this. Yeah, it really, it, we pointed out while we were talking before starting the recording that it really is emphasizing the preservation of a mystery idea of this notion that um, there is an ineffable God who has entered our reality and profoundly changed it by entering into solidarity with it and provides a direction that, you know, we talk about by saying things like the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come, you know, having this sort of vision of reality bending towards justice and towards a future that is, you know, something to celebrate. Um, There's also nothing in the creed that, uh, you know, is explicit about like, what is the content of the Bible? 
Um, and is that content like, how, how is that content like delivered? And, uh, you know, is it inerrant? Is it anything like that? So heresy. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just saying, uh, it's not in there. So the earliest Christians must not have thought it was in there or it wasn't important enough to put it there. Fact checker, Brian, uh, since we've been using the word, can you explain to us exactly what heresy means? Because often, you know, it tends to be presented in sort of a dramatic way. And, you know, as you just did heresy, Uh, I will I will just give a basic definition of heresy as something that is beyond the bounds of Christian norms in theological belief. You mean it's not just sort of a made up excuse for me to persecute you? Well, sometimes they were just kind of made up excuses to persecute people, but um, uh, we got into that really by the time of the Spanish Inquisition, and that's not really the period we're covering. Yeah, so one thing that the Creed mentions um, that I don't think that the authors would have been able to even comprehend what we have today is that we believe in one church, uh, one holy Catholic church, holy and apostolic, and... um, could they have imagined the amount of denominations and variations and splinters that we have today? And what does that mean that we believe in one Catholic church? Yeah, that word Catholic, which I often actually get questions, especially from folks who grew up in like a a very heavily evangelical tradition about the word Catholic and the creed. The word Catholic really is just another word for universal. We could easily sub this out and say, we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. You know, it's not a specific designation of, you know, say the Catholic church as it exists today. It's this affirmation that, you know, we believe in a single, unified, universal church. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that no one could have envisioned uh, 40,000 denominations. To be fair, though, just writing this creed led to church splits. So, you know, they, they had the sense that people would leave if they didn't get their way. And they actually, in fact, did kick some people out too. You know, they were also during this time as they were writing the creeds, trying to create, you know, a normative church structure and a standard church, you know, set of teachings. And that did occasionally include some other things as well. They were trying to figure out who got to teach and who was in charge. Sometimes that didn't go so well. It really started to hurt, you know, say the status of women in the church when they started to work these things out, uh, which, you know, I think we universally here think of as a huge misstep on their part. Agreed. Uh, All right. Very good. Well, do we have any final closing thoughts? Uh, We should talk about just really quickly other, uh, mention that there are other creeds that you might hear weekly. Um, There are many different ways to express what we believe as Christians uh, the Nicene Creed, as we said, was uh, sort of the original. Um, but, um, you know, if you have questions about creeds or other creeds or, um, you know, want to rap about the creeds with us, send us an email because we may have missed something. If you want to rap about the creeds, I insist that the email rhyme, however, just so we can be <laughs> sure that you have the skills to keep up with us. I'm not sure of what we demonstrated today was skills, but okay. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about more creeds and confessions later, especially when we get into, uh, in our episodes about Christianity, especially when we get into specific talk about, you know, what do different groups or denominations of, you know, 
Christianity, the broad umbrella, what do those different subsets believe and think? Because, you know, they clearly have a lot more to say than just what's in this, you know, paraphrase right here in the Nicene Creed or what's contained in the uh, sort of more or less universal canon of scripture, which most churches accept. So Sarah, you want to wrap about uh, what's giving you life right now? Yeah, sure. So right now, I think the most obvious uh, thing in my mind is our cat, Mary Magdalene, who is our smallest yet loudest cat. You may have heard her, there she is, meowing at the door. I thought that maybe it would get quieter when we let her in, but then I remembered she purrs like a lion. (laughs) So if you were listening and were wondering what those crazy noises were, there's not an earthquake here. It is our tiny orange cat. She's pretty great. She's the best, except for other two kitties who are also the best. I think all of your animals are great. (laughs) She, She is clearly John's favorite. Anyway, but thank you, Brian. What's giving you life? Um, so I'm pretty excited about, I selected the, the paint for our sanctuary renovation. And it's, and it's a lovely two, two shades of gray. Look at you, Chip and Joanna Gaines. That was like the most passive aggressive burn I've ever heard. I was <laughs> Well, so let me just say that, um, I was up on a ladder this morning, like painting the cross, like, and we have this ginormous, like 20 foot cross in the sanctuary. So painting that thing on a ladder was a little nerve wracking, but I'm glad I made it. So that gave me some life, literally, because I didn't die. Well, very good. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a really fun episode of Logosish. Sarah's. What's giving you life? Well, I already said my cat, my favorite cat. Because you can have favorites. Don't let them tell you that you can have favorites. Kids, cats, whatever, there is always definitely a favorite. Oh, you guys are my favorite. (laughs) Friends, don't forget to like us on Facebook, to send us an email if you have questions. Yes, subscribe, let us know what you're up to. Google, Apple, and more podcast services. Email us at logosishpod at gmail.com. Check us out at logosishpod on Twitter or check out our Facebook page. Regardless, we hope you enjoyed this kind of breezy, stripped down version of our normal podcast. Have a great week.